This is gonna take a lot of hugs. My name is Matthew Grohl. And that was a crime against music. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Trolls World Tour. Have you only pulled that out twice, that echo effect twice? Yeah, but we're rocking out. And and, and there's, you know, Shahir, there's a reason. I'm trying to think. No, no, wait, hang on, back up. When was the last time you pulled that out of effect? I don't know. <laughs> what? I feel like I've only heard it once. I feel like you could be rocking that a lot more. You got to leave the people wanting more. Any good world tour knows that. Um, <laughs> speaking of wanting more, speaking of rocking, speaking of music, Shahir, uh, dear listeners, yeah. you might have heard something at the beginning of this episode that you 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 you, I, you obviously loved, but you might not have been able to place, and that's because we've got theme music. We have a theme song composed by Glenn Kavanaugh, aka Pyramids, who I've directed music videos for, and who was kind enough to lend us some of his musical genius uh, to help us out and actually give us a theme song. I'm very... Uh, it's taken us a long time to get to this point, yes. but uh, I'm really glad we kind of waited. We, we it, to, Oddly, for people who don't make a lot of money on the internet doing what we do, we are some picky motherfuckers when it comes to music. Listen, we- <laughs> it's our passion project, and, and to be fair, we make zero money from this podcast currently. That's not oh, to yeah, say yeah. that we might not try to change that in the future. Don't <laughs> worry, it'll always be free. But the the you know, we 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 we're doing this out of for the love of the game, Shahir. Yeah, we're totally for the love of the game. And I guess what that means is we have a little bit more uh we can be we can afford to be picky because nobody cares about what we do, apart from you, dear listeners. So uh we hope you enjoy that theme song. Uh we're hoping we can do uh an episode with Glenn uh shortly. We're trying to pick a movie. I think we're leaning towards Michael Mann's Heat. Oh, so that'll wow. be exciting. Oh, shit. Uh, I'm also hoping that at some point we can do an episode about music in movies. Uh, there's a lot of things I'm hoping we can do, uh, but one of those things has been checked off the bucket list this week, which is that we now have a theme song, which will be across all of our episodes from this point. That's forward. true, and we will be going back and updating older episodes with it as well. So if you start to hear this in episodes, maybe you listen to an episode twice. I don't know. I love you for it. Uh, <laughs> you might notice this coming back slowly as we update our back catalog. Uh, I'm going to love that in the episodes where we specifically talk about the music. It's going to be like, oh yeah, let's play this song. And then it won't be that song anymore. There's nothing, there's nothing to be done about it. Listen, and and actually, you know, let's take a little peek behind the curtain for, for the listeners here. The goal of this too is because we realize, and this is a spoiler alert, getting into some real industry talk here. Uh, we don't own any of the music that we've ever started or ended any of these podcasts with. <laughs> so we want to, um, for lack of a better term, go legit. Um, that might also mean moving platforms and doing a couple other things. Uh, so over the course of the next couple months, uh, you know, there'll be some changes around these uh, only movie podcast parts. Yeah, and uh, hopefully a couple of other things will come and play as well. I know there's talk of a Discord server at some <laughs> point, uh, or, or maybe other things. One thing we got an email about uh, this week, uh, or a Twitter message about, you know, last week I, I mentioned the fact that, you know, podcasting is changing right now uh, very much so because uh, people aren't listening to podcasts as much as there's anything we can do to help in terms of making your podcast experience a little bit better. And one of the emails that we got over Twitter today just mentioned the fact that they would love us to just to just give a, an early heads up of what the movie next week is going to be. Um, so we are we're definitely going to do that. One thing that I'm not sure about and I'm now requesting a follow-up email on wow. is what is the best platform for communicating to you with? Uh, I believe 
believe it's Twitter is where we're primarily uh, focused right now. But if you know, if you need us to be like doing dances on TikTok, just let us know. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll find my Friendster account. I'll, I'll see <laughs> if I can get on there. Yeah, yeah, we do have a Facebook account. We do have a Twitter account. We do have email, obviously. Do we have anything else? Is well, there anything else we're doing? I don't know. Well, here's the deal. Uh, please message Jungle us. Drums, please message us with your with your, and it can be short too. Uh, just message us what your preferred method of communication is, and we'll try to take the 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 majority and sort of go that direction. Then let everyone know what that is. And of course, we're not going to like abandon Facebook or anything like that. But like, it's just good to know where you get your your Topam news from. Um, oh, Topam. I just love that abbreviation. Yeah, it's a good abbreviation. Because it sounds like Toe Jam and Earl. I, it's, no. <laughs> do you remember that video game? Of course I do. And then there was yeah. a new game that was not quite as good as the old game. Doesn't matter. Right. Um, but so, wait. In, in, the, in This is going to be interesting because <laughs> we did not rehearse this at all. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the spirit of trying to let people know what we're doing next week, what are we doing next week? <laughs> next week? I don't know. I know. I I do have some interviews coming up scheduled for the Lord of the Rings episode, but I don't think they're going to be done by next week. Okay, so we'll just uh, try to get the information to you quicker. Yeah, we'll try to get to you quicker. There is a. Uh, I mean, you know what? Uh, the the film that I think I would love to do is uh, Kitty Green's movie, The Assistant, mm. uh, which has been getting great reviews. Was released early. Um, There's also, kind of. Oh, sorry. What's that? And go ahead. And also kind of just, you know, like uh, faded out very quickly because because of COVID and, you know, like it was a small movie in the theater. But I think that would be an interesting one to revisit. Or we got Capone. Ah, Capone. Josh Trank's uh, return to form. I am very curious about this film, uh, especially since we did do Fantastic Four on this this podcast. uh, And Fantastic Four was a film that we uh, heavily derided. Uh, Matt Patches over at uh, Variety has a really... um, Sadly truthful, oh, sadly earnest um, portrait of uh, one Mr. Josh Trank, um, which is really, really worth reading. It's very long, um, but it's it's very much worth a read. Um, and I was kind of, in my heart of hearts, I was hoping Trank was going to find his footing. You know, like Fantastic Four was going to be the blip in his career. Uh, you know, Trank, obviously, uh, he directed uh, Chronicle, um, mm-hmm. which I have not seen, but I own a copy oh, of it. Oh, it's great. And, yeah, yeah, I've heard it's very, very good. Um, and then, you know, uh, obviously jumped over into Fantastic Four, which we know how much of a debacle that was. Please go back and listen to that episode. Also, see if there's new music see on it. There's new music in there by it. now. There <laughs> yeah. won't be. There won't there be. Won't be. But... Um, and uh, and then decided to make sort of a personal comeback by doing a film about uh, Al Capone and his dying years. But the reviews are scatological at best, both about the movie and about uh, the content of the movie. So I'm very curious to see that one. Is it? I'm was guessing that a poop it's on joke? VOD, right? Was that a poop? I guess it has to be. Okay. Uh, VOD, yes. It's on VOD. I believe it's Amazon. You can get it on, on Prime or something. You could rent it like that, like, you know, the, like for 10 bucks or something. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious to check it out. Uh, yeah. We'll, uh, maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll do a Twitter poll. Ooh, I love me yeah. a Twitter poll. Uh, in absence of Twitter polls, we also have some emails that we're going to go through uh, this week. A few, of them, uh, Quite a few of them coming in, so uh, bear with us as we go through these. We do love hearing from you, so please write us in at onlymoviepodcast.gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod or Facebook or start a TikTok page or a Discord or whatever it is you need. Jungle drums, anything you need to get to us, we'll try and listen to it. Technically, uh, any drums will work. Any drums? Yeah, not just drunk drums. Yeah. You're right. You're right. That's the, that. We'll talk about that on Trolls too. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh we will. 
Uh, Tourist Man, been a long time, no talk. I hope everything is well with you guys. I just caught up with the newest episode of the podcast, and I do have something to add about the AMC Universal debacle. Uh, for those who don't know, we're talking about the fact that the film that we're just about to discuss, Trolls 2, uh, perform, overperformed uh, at home and uh, has caused a bit of a rift between AMC and Universal Pictures. Yes. Uh, what AMC, and this is Tourist Man here, what AMC did there is dangerous, not just for themselves, but the future of theaters. Love it or hate it, theaters have to play nice to companies, especially in a time where moving over to the digital release space is easier than ever. Let's face the facts, production companies don't need theaters anymore, and for AMC to basically throw a hissy fit over the fact that Trolls did decently is going to have lasting consequences for all movie theaters. Also, to add to your thoughts around movie theaters opening right now, that seems to be decisions made by people not associated with movie theaters. A lot of theaters don't want to open, and states that are allowing theaters to open are doing more so on the basis that this is, and being extremely blasé here, owning the libs. So it's likely that uh, theaters are that are sensible and caring of their customers will wait for before opening, and any theaters opening now are either doing so to earn a quick buck or because they're being semi-forced to by their states to do so. Um, we There's a lot to, di- lot yeah. to digest there. Um, we did cover this in some... Um, in some detail last week. Thanks, Tourist Man. We know you do uh, work uh, for a movie theater, I think. Uh, I hope that's still true or maybe uh, no longer true because of the situation that, as it exists right now. Um, you and I kind of briefly went over the fact that if a movie theater did open, neither of us would be that far inclined to go to a movie. Nope. Um, and you know what's um, so- interesting? I don't think there's a film out, or, or sorry, a film announced that I would be like, I know, I need to go. Yeah, even films I really, really want to see in a movie theater, yeah. like Christopher Nolan's Tenant, mm-hmm. um, I'm totally fine with waiting. And listen, you know me, you know me and, and my marvelous uh, love of Marvel. Oh, yeah. uh, I've been waiting for Black Widow. I want it real bad. I'm not going to the fucking movie theater. Are you kidding imagine me? If this had, imagine if this had happened oh my before God, don't say Infinity it. War. Fuck. Is Infinity War the second one? Which one's the second one? Uh, uh, Endgame is the second one. Imagine if this happened right before Endgame. I know. I was thinking about that the other day. Yeah. And how, and how this has created, again, I don't want to go on a Marvel tangent, but I'm gonna. Um, this has created kind of a, 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 a bit of a rift between the phases. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if it does anything. I don't know. Um, but uh, also, I, I think, you know, there was... Um... An interesting document that I read, uh, I can't remember, I can't recall the stats were, but it was something along the lines of uh, movies in America generate something, somewhere in the vicinity of $40 billion uh, a year in terms of uh, theater tickets. And movie theaters contribute 20, uh, I mean, something like 30 to 40% of that. I might be getting all of these stats wrong, sure. but it was a significant amount. And And what the argument that was being made there is that movie theaters had been there for, for studios for a long time, so for stu- so for them, the relationship being um, uh, cut in such a sort of in, in a way like this uh, is deeply damaging to their bottom line, and I can understand why they might be upset about it. Of course, um, so there is there is. Uh, a lot. Uh, 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 whenever there is a lot of money at play, the politics of which gets very complicated, and the politics of movie theaters reopening and movie theaters deciding to move to home VOD dis- uh, distribution, uh, movie studios moving to home VOD distribution, is a complicated subject, which breaks, uh, which which you know covers the ground of, of both economics and contract law um, to quite a degree. So I, you know, again, for me personally, there's no. 
Uh, there's no incentive for me to go to the theater no. uh, at any time soon, and that is a problem for theaters. And I would like to shout out a good thing that a theater is doing, again, innovating in this time of of um, of crisis. And, of course, this is not helping theater workers themselves or, or, or uh, because the, the, the physical space where the movies were shown cannot be opened or should not be opened, in my humble opinion, me and, you know, the scientists. Um <laughs> But the the place that I've long touted as my one of my favorite theater chains, the Alamo Draft House, uh, is doing Alamo on demand. Have you heard of this year? Yeah, and they're curating a selection of movies that you can get on demand right now. Yeah, right? but like even their pricing models are interesting. Like for instance, they have this thing called six packs, mm-hmm. which you can rent or buy, um, and it's pretty good. Like six movies to rent for like around thirteen dollars, and they are good. Like if you just look at the Korean cinema pack, the six pack. Yeah. For $13, you can rent Burning, The Host, I Saw the Devil, The Man from Nowhere, Mother, and The Wailing. Like Now, the issue here is a lot of these films are available on Netflix. Oh, interesting. But still. So so and so you know, what they're okay. doing is essentially is essentially they are curating for you, which is something like a, like a streaming service like Mubi does as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but these films are, you know, many of these films are available on Netflix. So it's the question is is your patronage now I know they're just trying to they're, they're trying to figure out another way the other thing about Alamo Drafthouse that's slightly different is Alamo Drafthouse is also a production company so they do produce films themselves as well sure so they they will be produ- they will be allowing their films to be on that platform as well so it's a slightly different relationship I do like the innovation here but you know I don't know if this is going to be the the thing. You know, this is one step in the of course in the, in the direction, but I don't think this is going to turn the tide. And straight up, would I be excited if AMC did this? Probably not. But I've also witnessed between AMC and Alamo Drafthouse. If I had to guess, which people amongst their company actually loved movies more for what movies are and and less for what movies can do for them, I would say Alamo Drafthouse in in its ilk and what it has done, even with the theater going experience, uh, is more in line with uh, how I want a theater to be run. So, I don't know. It was just a thing that actually the uh, writer for Extra History, uh, Robert Rath, brought up today that I, it, I didn't know about. Well, one other thing to, to note as well is the Cannes Film Festival has been canceled. The Cannes canceled. Anyway, um, uh, but in, in lieu of that, what they're doing is the films that were selected for Cannes this year are now going to be streaming for free on YouTube. So wow. the film festival is essentially going entirely on YouTube. And that, to me, is kind of interesting because these are films that don't have distribution uh, that will be available to stream on YouTube. And um, we're talking about films, you know, filmmaker, you know, premier filmmakers um, whose work you normally don't get to see will be available for free on YouTube. Here's so a I'm, question. I'm excited about that. And I, I don't know if you can answer this. I haven't, uh, but like, is it just going to be like, because what I would, what I would do in this particular situation, if I was in control of the con uh, streaming, whatever, <laughs> is to still give it a bit of a sense of, um, uh, uh, you know, speci- specialness or something. Yeah, there is a there's a timeline for which you can view. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Like they should have, and I shit you not, it would it would actually be interesting screenings. Like yeah. there should be a time between like seven and ten where you could start streaming the movie, and that's it. Right yeah, there, I believe the plan is to have like uh, streaming windows available on YouTube, so these films aren't entirely right. going up for free. Because, like for instance, I know this is a little bit of different of a beast, but like Hamilton is going to be on Disney Plus for twenty four hours or some shit. Is it twenty four hours only? Okay, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, or something. Um, anyway, also, I'm, I'm very curious um, how Quibi, how our friend Quibi is doing in this period of um, of uh, transformation right now. Um, it was like a thousand voices a lot about cried Quibi. out, and then were uh, silenced. 
Yeah, Quibi is an interesting one. I guess the thing that I'm really interested in there is uh, Steven Spielberg's show, uh, which has the sort of alternate distribution platform, uh, alternate distribution idea, which is that the film will only, or the, the episodes will only be released, I think, between midnight and 4 a.m., and that's the only time you can watch them. Um, so I was really curious about that and whether that's going to happen. I don't know if the show's actually even being made right now. Um, I worked on a Quibi show um, earlier this year. so Oh, I man, you got the got- Quibi? Uh, I got. I did get the Quibi. Yeah, I got the Quibi all up in me. Wow. Um, <laughs> but I'm. Uh, it's an itch. Uh, also, the there's an interesting ongoing battle right now between Quibi and Echo, uh, another technology company, which is uh, they're both fighting over the uh, the rights to the Quibi technology, which is called Turnstyle. That's the thing that allows you to turn the phone, rotate the phone from one format to the other, and for it to transform seamlessly. Sure. Uh, which is something I had to like pretty much learn uh, how to do in a, from a post-production point of view uh, very, very uh, quickly. Also, those Snapchat glasses back in the day were doing that like five years ago. I don't know why this is like a new proprietary thing. Oh, well, you could you could flip it from side to side? So the, from... the, the Snapchat made these like proprietary glasses that were actually pretty cool. Shout out to Nick Parker who went to like a kiosk one day to get them because he couldn't get them sort of everywhere. And you could go and do Snapchat uh, videos. Remember Snapchat? Wow, that's yeah. crazy. Uh, and, and basically it would record, uh, maybe it was a different technology because it would record almost like a circle of video. Right, like and, a 360 video? No, like the, the framing of the video instead of like a 16 by 9 box if you looked at the file it was like a circle right and then if you just you could you could rotate it wasn't like lock and lock you could rotate and it would just show you i don't know right. anyway different thing turnstyle turnstyle is slightly different in that turnstyle locks the orientation between 9 by 16 and 16 by 9 mm-hmm. uh, and the difference here is that it's in highly produced content that you have to apply the turnstile the turnstile principle. Yeah. So what that means is um, if you've got something that's framed for 16 by 9 and a user suddenly flips it over to 9 by 16, what are they going to be looking at at that particular moment? Yes. And what are they going to be looking at if they flip over? So the thing that's interesting about turnstile is the audio experience is consistent, but the visual experience can change. And I have to say, I think the, the one of the biggest things about Quibi is that nobody's really exploiting that technology for interesting narrative sake. I think there is one show, I think by If Gary Gray, I can't remember the title of it, um, but it's basically where you can, wa- when you flip horizontal, you'll see the, you know, the, the sort of traditional 16 by 9 experience. When you flip vertical, you might see some, um, you know, like user shot video of the same thing happening at the same time. So you actually get a different experience between the two. I don't think a lot of shows are exploiting that because it is quite jarring. But, you know, anyway, regardless, sidetrack to Quibi. Uh, do you want to take another sidetrack into the world of subtitles? I will take a sidetrack into Baby Dread. Uh, Baby Dread writes in and says, I just wanted to shoot an email to ask a question. Lately, I think everybody has had a pretty positive conversation about watching foreign films in their intended languages with subtitles. Dubbing is typically frowned upon, but I don't quite understand why. I grew up with Spanish as my first language. The majority of cartoons I saw were in Spanish. I imagine dubbing with anime slash cartoons is more acceptable since it's targeted at children and so subtitles are, are more of a barrier. My dad is a movie junkie, so I got to watch a lot of action flicks as well. Naturally, a lot of these movies starred Bruce Willis. Shout out, Bruce Willis. And and dubbed movies were the norm. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name, so I apologize. Mario Castaneda. Um, Castaneda. Castaneda. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, The voice actor for Willis uh, was a common voice actor on TV. 
uh, not just because he was the voice of Bruce Willis, but because, uh, to me, he was the voice of Jim Carrey, Jackie Chan, and even Goku. And due to this, there are some movies that I've yet to even watch in English. My point is that I have had a massive respect uh, for voiceover artists, especially since I'm someone who's had English as a second language. When Bong Joon-ho uh, did his speech about the one-inch barrier, I figured he meant it as encouragement. But there have been some comments I've seen online that act very gatekeepy about subs being the true way to watch foreign movies. I just wanted to get your take on that subject. Thank you, Baby Dread. Yeah. Um, so, so, interesting. Straight up. There's a lot of situations, and you've laid out one of them, where uh, the, the sub is uh, a greater sign than the dub. Um, and that has to do, I think, with, well, there's, first of all, there's the, um, how do I put this? The ingesting of information factor. If it is something aimed at children, like a cartoon, sure, you want it to be as easy as possible. If uh, you are dealing with uh, people with uh, 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 handicaps or, or ailments that don't allow them to read subtitles, uh, that's another issue. Uh, so there's that whole thing when, of course, this whole argument one way or the other goes out the window. Uh, basically, whatever way that you want or whatever way your brain best ingests media that it can is the best way for you. Uh, then the second part of this is sort of the, um, uh, I guess, uh, nurture versus nature sort of bit. in the, Not versus, just the nurture part of this, where it would be um, your your surroundings when you are given a thing to watch. For instance, I've brought up both for the we, the episode we did on Final Fantasy uh, Advent Children Complete. I saw that only um, uh, uh, dubbed back in the day, so that is how I watch it. Same with Cowboy Bebop. That is how I watch it, because that's how I am now ingrained with these stories that mean a lot to me. Um, however, I have personally, because I am uh, lucky enough to have the option to uh, both... Um, you know, uh, be able to engage with and enjoy films both that are subtitled and dubbed. Um, I now choose to do the um, subtitled version solely because I think it it is the closest thing to the filmmaker's original intent, uh, and 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 solely because I have the option to do so. Um, I don't think that means that, and I, I kind of get mad. And I I used to fall into this camp. I think. Um, I mean, hell, maybe even when we talked about this, the one-inch barrier, I might have sounded like this, and I apologize if I did. Um, there's a lot of um, – something I'm learning through this whole COVID thing is the discourse in general is garbage. Um, it's a lot of hot takes, and it's a lot of getting angry at small things. And then, granted, there's a lot of getting angry at large real things too, but they're, it's all intermingled, and then like it's just like a, a sea of rage. And – uh, I'm I'm getting a little bit fed up with the idea that like people get like legitimately upset or or even like snippy on Twitter about whether or not somebody is enjoying a film one way or the other. So uh, I have to agree. I think with the heart of your email, Baby Dread, in the sense that uh, there I I don't think uh, depending on your situation the, the situation of which uh, subtitle or a dubbing is better is solely based on the person ingesting that media. And no one can tell you different. They can say what it was intended, but they're not, they can't tell you what is best for you to understand it and enjoy it. Sorry, that was a ramble, and I apologize, Shahir. Uh, 
No, not at all. Uh, I'm, I think I'll just uh, paraphrase McBain from The Simpsons, which is, I came here to lead, not to read. And I think that was um, why, what uh, Bong Joon-ho was really getting at with the uh, thing. I, I, I don't, you know, look, uh, I, I'm in total agreement here, which is that watch watch it however you want to watch it. I think Bong Joon-ho's argument here was that people aren't watching foreign films. And if you look at yeah. uh, the uh, um, box office receipts for uh, foreign films in America, that is always the case. Whereas if you look at the box office sheets for um, non-foreign films in other countries, they are, you know tend to be proportionately higher. So, um, uh, or non-English speaking films, right. sorry. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a complicated, it's, it, it, to me, I prefer to, like, for me, the reason to watch movies is that it is a gateway into another life, another culture, another place that I don't exist in. And and I think that is why I want to watch movies. And and so for me, if I can watch it in the language that it was originally created in, uh, that is my preference because that is part of the philosophy with which I watch movies. Now, I am not... Um, visually impaired or nor am I uh, uh, audio impaired uh, auditorily impaired um, so I have the the benefit of uh, being able to do that um, I recall uh, going to um, uh, I was in Vancouver of all places I think Ooh. and I saw on TV they were playing a visually impaired uh, uh, dubbed version of Seven at the time and I started watching it and basically if you've ever watched a visually impaired sub uh Version. What they do is the, there's a narrator who's describing everything that's happening on screen, um, and it can be pretty amusing for a film that's as visually driven as Seven. You know, for example, the narrator uh, um, it narrates the opening credits, which is that amazing montage of like uh, John Doe, you know, slicing his finger blade, finger um, his his um, uh, fingerprints, yep. and and you know, like pasting things together, and it's like it's all being described to you. Um, but that is a way that a person, if, if a person wasn't ordinary able to, uh, ordinarily able to ingest that movie, that is the way that they would ingest that movie. Then more power to you. Um, yeah, um, my 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 th- my my general thinking though is that uh, the reason why I prefer uh, subs over dubs is that subs is a better gateway into the thing that I want to get into, which is understanding something from the point of view that for, of which it came. Um, I'm totally in uh, uh, in a in 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 understanding of the fact that certain actors will have voiceover artists that only do their work. There's a there was a famous article I read, I think it was in Empire magazine, which talked about the Tom Cruise in every country, yeah, and yeah. every country has its own Tom Cruise, and there's this one person who only does Tom Cruise voices. And so basically, if Tom Cruise goes to this other country, they kind of, he's kind of obligated to meet this person who is his 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 voice uh, in that country. Um, and you know, like certainly, uh, the moment at which that, that reality is shattered between you and what the, what you heard and what becomes true. Um, I think it is, it can be profound and, and maybe disturbing. It's, uh, not unlike the time I heard David Beckham speak for the first time. Um, but, but you know, um, uh, I think more power to whatever choice you make, just watch, just enjoy the things you watch. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got one more email, Shahir. Take us home so we can start getting to the rock. 
Okay, last week we reviewed Michael Bay's Six Underground, which we had a great conversation about auteur theory. Um, and Jacob chimed in, uh, I had this weird feeling that I wanted to give a compelling reason why the action of Six Underground just wasn't very good. Ooh. Last week we talked a lot about how while we uh, found the film sort of uh, somewhat uh, skippable, uh, we couldn't deny that the, the action, uh, as always with Michael Bay, is on par. But Jacob continues, it felt like the idea that you were both sitting over that didn't jive with me. Uh, the tension release of good comedy and action isn't being done here by Michael, by Michael, but by Michael Bay. But the moment-to-moment action is phenomenally well made, and I want to say that argument doesn't hold up for me. I imagine that even a movie-making crew that is not doing a great job on set might wind up with a film that has a few frames that are just immaculate, like the composition and lighting of those individual frames are just stunning. But I still would say that what makes up for what uh, that wouldn't make up for what might be a movie of lackluster shots. I just don't think that the action moments here hold up to other films that are also full of action. Even if you cut out all the non-action moments of Mad Max Fury Road, it's clear that the, that the action of, in that film understands what good action is. And it is infinitely more watchable than Six Underground. Uh, couldn't agree more with that comparison, by sure. the way. Um, I think maybe the point that I was trying to make there, and it comes from a, a personal bias as a filmmaker, is that Michael Bay's ability to he wield the mechanics of action filmmaking, to me, are unparalleled. Like, he makes doing a chase scene you know, seem rudimentary, you know, and he can do it with all the verve and flair of someone, you know, of, um, uh, of, a, of an immaculate dialogue scene, uh, in a David Mamet film, you know, like he's just got that, he, he seems to have that innate ability to kind of wield and the mechanics of an action scene. And that's something actually that I think is, can be challenging to do. Um, it's no reason why, uh, in, for example, in the Marvel cinematic universe, a lot of action scenes are, uh, outsourced to the second unit director. Um, it's because Michael Bay is very good at this. And so, uh, while I don't necessarily think his action set pieces are the most extraordinary or beautiful, I do think he can create them with a stunning and breathtaking efficiency and ease that makes, you know, like the logistics of every scene that he's doing is challenging for the best of filmmakers. And he's got them in every single scene. So I think my point of view kind of was more of a, a logistical point of view as opposed to uh, a thing. So I guess maybe I admire his ability more than I love. Sure. It. And I think it's interesting too, is something interesting uh, to delineate is that when we, when I, when I say something like the construction of an action scene, uh, where I think Michael Bay shines is in the physical construction of an action scene. He knows what to shoot. He knows how to show movement he uh, understands the flow of kinetic energy that plays through um, uh, a, a, a larger-than-life scene, right? But what I, when I say the construction of an action scene sort of in a different way, what I think he is, is actually kind of uh, – no, when no one tells him no, I think actually he's not even the best person to show his work through uh, because in the edit, the, especially in Six Underground – uh, I was furious with basically the first half of the movie's action sequences. It seemed like it calmed down a bit when the sets got bigger. But, like, that chase scene in the beginning of the film is is nigh unwatchable. Like, to understand, <laughs> like, spatial dynamics, 
Um, it's it's cartoonish though. I, I think I I sort of forgive the fact that yeah, it's it completely is nonsensical, but but kind of cartoonish. But the problem uh, is think... the problem is it's not a cartoon. Like that that I I really I I could not connect. So so if, if an action sequence isn't working, I'll often look for oh like maybe there's an overarching theme or even the score or the actors or the, the characters of what's going on, and nothing was available for me to latch onto, and therefore my mind was just like. And like I was just sort of waiting for it to be over, and it felt like it never ended. Um, the the time you know, like uh, as a filmmaker, the time that I kind of really latched onto this idea, and I have not revisited this film, but when I watched Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds and the first sequence in War of the World, I was like, man, this guy just knows how where to put the camera in every single moment. Mm. And how to cut every moment together really well. And I think that's a really good example of like the mechanics being in perfect harmony with what the film is trying to do. Um, because it's also terrifying that's you know, that that first sequence in War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds has a number of other problems, but but that opening sequence of War of the Worlds. And I rewatched uh if anyone's interested, you know, you can watch Six Underground on, on Netflix right now. Minority Report is also on, on Netflix right now. And it is phenomenal. It is a it is a masterclass in action filmmaking. Um, and one that, you know, I would happily revisit at the drop of a hat and one that I, you know, deeply, deeply admire and love. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, Jacob, I can't disagree with your take <laughs> on this at all. I think you're, you're spot on in terms of like, there is a connectivity problem that happens when you just don't care. Um, <laughs> and, and, and to be fair, you know, like Six Underground is a film that I had to start a couple of times because I just didn't care. Um, but uh, but, you know, I still, you know, for all my uh, hot takes uh, about Michael Bay, I still think um, he his ability to wield action is unparalleled. And if you look at uh, what he can do in a single film and what he seems to do in every single film, that is uh, a unique ability. Now, whether it's good or bad or whether you like it or not, that's kind of beside the point. My point here is that. He just does it all I was the thinking, time and does it pretty well. I was thinking of a tangent to our, our tour conversation, and I don't want to go too deep into this because we got to talk about some 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 trolly trolly trolls. Mm. Um, not to be confused with the candy trolley, uh, which would make a gummy troll. You get my idea. Um, so side tangent to the side tangent. Yes, but now we're going back to the original tangent. Um, yeah. I, I'm wondering, and maybe I could put together my own TED Talk or multi-part tweet to sort of... Uh, uh, possibly back this claim up but do you think it's a safe bet to say that even the greatest filmmakers are better when surrounded by trusted professional confidants that can tell them no um uh, as a general hypothesis, I think that's true to life in in, in general. general. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but so film, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think in my brain. Now, the one that that comes to mind is um, uh, Quentin Tarantino's editor, uh, who passed away a few years ago, mm. uh, Sally uh, Sally Minke, who passed away in 2010. And a lot of people have made the comment that Tarantino's movies post. Minke's involvement have been different you yes. know like while long and and you know while you know somewhat long-winded in the most polite way that I can say it mm -hmm. they felt like they had direction under Minke uh, as Minke you know edited these together and, and people have wondered about that I don't you know like it's it's hard to kind of again directing making films I've always said is kind of 
the the actual pinning down what it is is like you know pinning down the ephemera of yeah. of meaning um and and auteur theory is kind of an attempt to anchor that ephemera of meaning around a singular vision and that's what it is um you know you can argue that uh david oselznik you know producer was one of the greatest auteurs in history because of his ability to wield films around what he wanted um you know there there's a number of theories about like who the auteur is and how how much influence does somebody have uh, in terms of the, the the making of a film, you know, there's a great um, the the broccolis who make uh, the James Bond films have always been reticent to get hand over their franchise to filmmakers who legitimately want it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Jackson has wanted to make a James Bond film. Steven Spielberg has wanted to make a James Bond film. Quentin Tarantino has wanted to make a James Bond film, um, but none have been able to because they believe that they are the better arbitrators of what their franchise is. So, um. Whether a person is bitter when they're surrounded with people who say no, or whether they're surrounded, they're bitter when they're surrounded by trusted confidants, um, is 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 one of many factors. In fact, w- one could argue that you know uh, certain filmmakers have gotten worse the more money they have. You know, the more the the bigger their budgets have gotten, the worse their films have gotten. But there's options. Other filmmakers have gotten bitter the I bigger know. the budgets have gotten. But money so, can also be like a thing they're getting it over their head with like too much going on, or money could be like with strings attached, and therefore more people that are not in that trusted circle are telling them what to do. So you never kind of know. I don't know. It was just a thought I had. It's a very good point you bring up how, like, a tour theory we always sort of think about, or I do anyway. I won't globalize. I always think about directors, but there are plenty of. Uh, people in other sort of aspects of filmmaking that could be considered auteurs, producers, editors, etc. So anyway, sorry, I was just I was just sort of positing that the other day. I was like, we talk about all as one person, but like I bet you they're if we looked at bodies of work based on where they were in their career, how much money or thumbs they were under, and who they had around them, and how much they trusted and enjoyed the process, and were sort of on board, uh, there'd probably be some sort of correlation between like. I don't know, like a Metacritic score or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you could do it by hard data, but uh, the one I've always been interested in, I've always wanted to do a video essay about. I've never had the time or uh, the wherewithal to actually finish one, but uh, I've always been really interested in uh, Steven Spielberg's post-AI career. So AI was a film that he did under the auspices, under the the sort of looming auspice of Stanley Kubrick having written that film and kind of handpicked uh, St- Steven Spielberg to direct it, mm-hmm. uh, and who and a film which was kind of fairly maligned within the public press, and then who kind of rebounded her from that by making Minority Report, Munich, Catch Me If You Can, you know, uh, basically what's called his Running Man um, series of films, um, and kind of made it look effortless after being under. Basically, you know, one of the great auteurs, uh, pop culture auteurs of our time is being sort of pushed under the thumb of the great sort of critical auteur of our time, uh, Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg. I, th- I think that relationship would be really fascinating to kind of put under the microscope. Yeah. But, you know, again, it's all entirely ephemera. Sure. I need to go back and rewatch AI. Uh, oh, it's very that. good. It's very, very good. But we're not going to do that right now because <laughs> instead we're going to go to a land of felt and whimsy. Uh, with Trolls World Tour, uh, I would like to tell you what IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, says uh, of the description of Trolls World Tour. <clears throat> when the queen of hard rock trolls tries to take over the troll kingdoms, Queen Poppy and her friends try different ways to save all of the trolls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So this was a movie. Uh, I'm not going to put you under the uh, under the uh, in the hot seat here, but this was a movie you wanted to do. I did can because you, it, can you tell me why? why? Here's why. 100. percent I can. Um, so straight up, I see. I've seen Trolls one once. Uh, I don't remember a lick of it. Uh, I have friends. A uh, friend of the show, Kristen Fight. Uh, is a huge Trolls fan, um, and uh, the films, uh, not the the toys in general. Um, and I w- I never really could grasp on to the to the the hype train that she and many other people had for the original the original Trolls film. Um, but so we spent so long talking uh, during the Six Underground podcast about the changing of the way movies are distributed uh, because of what happened with this film with Trolls World Tour that I kind of wanted to give it a fair critical shake outside of just the tale of like, oh my God, can you believe Trolls World Tour is going to change the movie industry? Like, Because that was like the tenor of a lot of articles. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because it's like, oh, this silly dumb kids movie sequel is going to do this thing. Isn't that crazy? And I'm like, well, let's, okay. It's still made equal to what Trolls 1 made um, for the studio, I should say, uh, that Trolls 1 made for a five-month theatrical release in three weeks of At Home. So, like, maybe there's something beyond just the ease of this. Like, maybe there's this movie's actually doing something, but no one that I could find, at least easily, was talking about that. Uh, okay. So I so kind of wanted to. You wanted to, cut, you know, like break through the noise here and uncover the truth of Trolls. I guess, like, because, because, <laughs> um. I just feel like if we're going to be like leveraging this giant media shift and like this is the this is the the the, the epicenter, uh, we should at least give this film the the fairest of shakes and discuss its merits as a piece of media itself and not just what it did for the industry. Okay. Um. So that's why I wanted to do it. Um, I, I was kind of hoping, Shahir, that you would you would show your son, because I have questions about how a kid would watch this. I really was trying. So uh, uh, I have been uh, you know inundated with work for the last nine weeks uh, to the point where I, I think technically I'm working nine days a week because I'm working seven days and two overnights. Um, Fun. But uh, this week, I all of that ended. And I had like a few days, I mean, I've had like a few days where I've just been able to like uh, be a dad again. Uh, and and what I realized is that being a dad is full-time work even harder than the actual <laughs> editing work most of the time. Um, so uh, I have been trying to, I've been explaining to my son that uh, that I had to watch Trolls World Tour for the podcast. And he's been on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And we have family, friends, and a lot of people that reach out to us and say, hey, when is he going to be on the podcast again? Because we love those episodes. We've got, In fact, uh, my son's class would sit around and watch his little movie, those little YouTube movie reviews that we did at the uh, you know on our oh, YouTube yeah. page. And there was a friend of his who whose mother reached out and said, my daughter gets up every morning and watches that review every day at least two or three times a day and i was like well you know kids yeah um but so i was kind of like secretly hoping that he would be you know willing to join me for the ride by the way i have recorded another one of those oddly about oceans 12 i didn't show him oceans 12 what? but we had a we had a conversation about oceans 12 which i recorded um d- and how, one day i will put that together. about oceans 12 he hasn't seen oceans 12 he has seen one scene from Ocean's 12, which I showed him and which 
apparently captured his imagination. It's wow. a long story. Okay. I will I will one day reveal that when I have some time to get to it. Um, but uh, I I I my son I have to say has veered away from movies, and I think it's because of a time uh, <laughs> a time factor. It's just that his you know like while he is entirely captivated by watching media you know like we don't give him a lot of uh screen time and Mm -hmm. now since covid it's like screen time all the time um he definitely prefers shorter he's the perfect customer for quibi by the way um he (laughs) definitely prefers shorter bursts that start and stop over long run feature um and you know he doesn't want to you know he used to watch frozen at least once a week, he does not want to watch Frozen ever again. Um, he does; he's not interested in watching feature films anymore. So, I, for for this entire week, I have been trying to persuade him to watch Trolls uh, with me, and he has. <laughs> My son is like Darth Vader in uh, in Empire Strikes Back, which is that he alters the deals and prays that I don't sure. <laughs> that he doesn't alter it any further. Like he always starts the day with going, "Hey, by the way, if we do this and this and this, at the end of the day, we could watch Trolls, right?" And I go, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And get to the end of the day, he goes, you know what? I don't really want to watch Trolls. Can we maybe watch Mickey Mouse Funhouse instead? And that's what we end up doing. Uh, and I sit there on the couch sucking, you know, sulking because I don't get to watch the So movie really, he's the auteur, and you are the are the person not not reining his 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 uh, more um, chaotic impulses in. I think you're 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 mistaking the word auteur for authority. Oh well, so he is the authority, <laughs> um, and uh, and certainly uh, you know like uh, uh, suffering through uh, a two, one and a half hour tantrum from him for because we're watching Trolls instead of Mickey Mouse Funhouse. By the way, he loves Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. <laughs> uh, is difficult. So I did watch Trolls on my own. Okay, and it was not the way to watch this movie. Uh, because this is a movie really designed for children and designed for children, possibly the most uh, cynical way. Interesting. That's not to say it's wrong, but it is pop candy sugar for children to consume popcorn. Sure. But also I was shocked and I did not expect this. Cause again, I did not get this message from the first trolls whatsoever. There's a pretty heavy thematic arc that's sort of the meaning of what's going on in Trolls World Tour. Sure. Now, now again, um, that's why I was interested in a child watching it because I was curious if that would even come across, like if that would even connect or like would this be like the first time that a, a kid who eventually grows up would like kind of even remotely understand like, oh, I kind of learned about appropriation from Trolls World Tour. Like I don't I don't think the thought of appropriation would enter like knowing knowing my son I don't think appropriation would not enter his mind. You know what I mean? But like when they start learning what that sort of those sort of things are, would those concepts be easier to get across in a in a in a post Trolls World Tour viewing? I don't know. Right? So yeah, I I I think the film is really Working at a surface level, but with some hints of a broader, you know, uh, identity that is authentic, you know, about the way in which we, um, we. Cultures take from one another. popular culture. Yeah. 
you know. Um, but I will say, for me, none of that really, none of that's done with any sort of convincing, in any convincing way. Oh, I, I disagree. Uh, I think it's convincing. Do I think it's the most compelling? No. <laughs> Do I think it's dumbed down for a kid? Yeah. Like, you know, like I was, I was. Sorry, I didn't mean so, to interrupt. So you again, you wanted to uncover the 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 you know the the you wanted to pull back the curtain on trolls. What what is your what is your take on it? I mean, so so first and foremost, uh, I I and people know this. I'm a sucker for animation. I think the animation in this is very tight. I also love the DIY sort of style of the way that this thing looks. Everything is like felt and like almost tactile in its uh, thing. There's, it's interesting because, like, and again, don't get me wrong, like, Toy Story 4 looks gorgeous. And Toy Story has a way of, like, making us think that that's what Toy Story looked like. Like, they can get the feel down to, like, oh, well, Toy Story 1 looks like that, too. Toy Story 1 does not look like that. Like, it's a very, like, clean, but also, like, now more realistic in a real-world sort of setting type of thing. But, like, I always like the art direction style of like DIY and sort of making things look a little bit uh, more tactile. Um, so I loved that. Uh, voice acting was good voice acting from famous people. Um, I didn't so much care about the interpersonal conflicts of these characters because they were very flat, of course. Um, and one thing I will say, though, is in a lot of kids' movies, and Shahir, please correct me if I'm wrong or if you've experienced this differently, in the children's movies that I've seen of this day and age, oftentimes they wallow in silliness for a long time. And I felt like the jokes and the sort of gags in Trolls World Tour never outstayed their welcome for me as an adult. Like, they do something silly and move on. Like, the pace was good. It was never like... It never felt like... like and this sounds odd, but like pandering a joke to children to either elongate it or slow it down so they better get it. Like, it was just like a quick thing, and back over here. And I, while I didn't think the humor was particularly hilarious, uh, I appreciated the pace at which it was delivered to me. Uh, and then the thing that really shocked me was the the sort of message behind it. And I guess, you know, spoilers for Trolls World Tour. But there are, um, basically there are six... Um, uh, how do I put it? There, there's six musical groups in the trolls world. There's pop, rock, uh, classical, funk, EDM, and country is what it breaks it down into. Which you could go into the problems of those things in and of itself, but if we're simplifying it, whatever. And there are six strings that I guess gives the the troll world of each of these like its own life and identity and magic. And uh, uh, the the rock trolls led by I didn't even realize that Rachel Bloom was the was the uh, was Barb, the, the queen of the rock trolls, which is such a good casting. I think that's the best casting in this entire thing. Um, she is going around and taking all the strings to try to basically like unite all the worlds under rock because rock music is the best and blah, 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 blah. And it, you know, it's a classic sort of like, oh, we get it. Like, you know, big, scary rock things are bad. And then as you watch the film, you learn sort of the the loose history of this world is not exactly what you are led to believe it is. Like the convenient truths of things. A little bit like what Frozen 2 did, but I think a lot better in this format. Um, hmm. Where it actually goes in and, and the... the, the, the 
the tenor of what it's trying to say is even throughout rather than I think in, in Frozen 2 it kind of like threw it in there and it's like oh yeah and this like and it was treated more as a uh, a sh- uh, no, that's not true. I was gonna say a Shyamalan twist. That's not correct. Um, it was treated more of like a like a, a quick jerking twist rather than a like plant seeds. Oh, thinking about this. Oh shit! Because it turns out in this world that it actually originally was the characters from the first films, Poppy, Queen Poppy, played by Anna Kendrick, um, who uh, actually was the ones conscripting and sort of uh, were were the villains. Uh, so much in this musical troll world and was trying to homogenize everything kind of like pop music can be known to do. And uh, and there's a great line that I was going to start the podcast with, but I, I didn't quite catch it quick enough uh, where it said, you know, th- there's the, you know, the real quote of like history is written by the winners, but they actually use the phrase like the scrapbooks are cut and pasted by the winners or something like that. Like, and when it when the second that line hit, when it was going over like the adjusted history from what is expected based on uh, you know colonialism or however you want to go with it, uh, the that was when I was like, oh shit, trolls, trolls world tour is trying to say something, and then I was like, it's doing it in a fairly again simplified for children, but still effective in the message in the messaging beyond like of course it ends with. It's all better if we work together and we can have this medley and, you know, whatever. And that's sort of a classic kids thing. But its trip to get there made that ending feel more earned, I think, than that standard, um, you know, cookie cutter, love everyone sort of thing you kind of get, even though people are different in other kids movies. Like, I felt like it earned the way that it ended super cheesy, where oftentimes I feel like, kids movies end with this messaging without sort of explaining like how sometimes that doesn't happen and that's not fair and this is why we should do this so again i i don't want to i don't want to talk like this is the, the the second coming of a children's film but i was just shocked how much it impressed me i think is kind of my overarching feeling again I'm not going to sit. This is by far not even one of my favorite children's movies. I just maybe my bar was so low that when it actually did something, even though it wasn't a crazy thing, uh, I was impressed. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, the thing I was going to mention was the fact that Frozen 2 had done the same narrative uh, a little while back. And it is the kind of the sort of interesting narrative of post-colonialism uh, come to play, you know, like the idea that we are, n- we may be the villains, we may be the heroes now, but we will, we will once the villains. Yeah. And, um, and I think uh, for me, Frozen 2, while not sticking the landing on that, uh, on that idea, did, uh, did something more interesting with that in terms of like Anna and Elsa having to reckon with the fact that their past might, was not as what they considered. Whereas in this film, I think Poppy kind of just doesn't really have to reckon with that past. She just kind of learns that's what it is and then moves on from that as though, you know, as a, as, as, as she would normally. Sure. The and I think the difference though is movie... because the characters aren't related, right? Like, like there's direct lineages of Anna and Elsa, like to the people that were the fucking bad people in Frozen 2, where this is like, again, it doesn't like, excuse anything, but I think that's why the disconnect didn't bother me, because it's not like Poppy's dad did this. It's like Poppy, like the pop trolls, I don't know. And Poppy, I guess, in the first film, I don't know, it doesn't matter. That's I Look, think I, I haven't watched, so I don't, I'm not invested in the in the entire mythology here. Um, but I, I will, you know, like, it, it's, it's curious the... Um, 
the notions about the way in which music is kind of played here. And I think that, you know, the rabbit hole that this movie kind of got me thinking about was ethnomusicology, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like, you know, a, an off branch of anthropology. But, in, you know, sort of an interesting idea that, you know, I had to confront at an early age uh, when I'd moved from <laughs> Fiji to New Zealand, which is that, you know, like I came from a culture where reggae music was pretty much the primary source of, of uh, you know, the primary uh, thing that we listened to. And then when I went into high school, I remember being, you know, the, the battle that would occur every day was that we took a private bus to my high school with like, I think 15 of us, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe 10 to 15 of us on, on a bus. And we got to pick the, te- the, the cassette tape that would be played ah. that day. And I was the hip hop kid and everyone else was the, the hard rock kid. And basically that entire dynamic um, played out for many, many years until a few things happened in New Zealand culture that I thought was really interesting. One was that um, uh, it was it was the <laughs> this is really funny. And this is a name droppy sort of moment, but this is what Will Smith and I talked about when when I hung out with Will Smith. Um, do you want was, me? Do you was, want me to pick up the mic for you? Yeah, do you just want, pick up the mic. Hold on. We talked right about here. the fact that Will Smith's music was not popular in New Zealand until. Um, Coolio's Gangster's Paradise went to number one and played and stayed at number one for, I think, 40 weeks in the New Zealand charts. So, I mean, a lot of New Zealand radio stations that had branded themselves as exclusively stations that will not play, quote unquote, rap crap, had to suddenly change their tenor because the number one song in the country was, quote unquote, a rap song. And then the other one was TLC's um, uh, Waterfalls, which had a um, which had a, 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 a verse from... Uh, uh, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, um, you know, uh, rest in peace, uh, which was rap, you know, where she was actually rapping. And most radio stations would cut that out um, because they were like, well, we need this song to play, but we don't want, you know, we've got a contract that says with our audience that we're not playing this kind of music. Um, so what happened was when those two things came out, suddenly there was this fusion that started happening between rock and hip hop. And the best examples of this was Run DMC's... Um, uh, Walk This Way mm-hmm. with Aerosmith and the album which which got a lot of play in New Zealand but not a lot of play I think anywhere else in the world and that is Judgment Night for the move, the Cuba Gooding Jr. movie which had a lot of like hard rock bands paired up with rap bands. I think House of Pain was in there with Korn for example so there's a lot of that sort of thing. The thing that I came to realize over time and the fact that this is a DreamWorks animation film is that a lot of the you know a lot of the music that that is being discussed here is all quote-unquote pop music they're all under the same banner um you know like the the hard rock that uh that uh barb is singing here is kind of the pop music of the late 70s you know like she plays barracuda at one point um it's not it's not far of a realm to say that these people are unaligned in this film and and the idea that they kind of come together is entirely telegraphed in the first five minutes of the movie you don't have to be a child to be like watching this and thinking that's not what's going to happen by the end of this movie um so for me that that the 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 messaging of the idea of let's all come together despite the fact that you know like essentially uh barb and it it doesn't it doesn't feel like a stab at post-colonialism it feels more like a hey you are the same as me kind of thing or we have a shared history and that to me is you know pretty simple pretty you know i'm not offended by this film by the way i'm not suggesting that this is a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination i'm just not taken with it sure. and 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 i i kind of for for a film that's um i wonder if this is if this is a basically in the way that i watched it the 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 music to me didn't really catch you know like i really was not taken by i mean for example i have not seen trolls one but the the can't fight the feeling song 
is is a banger you yeah. know like that is a that is a hit right there it's very interesting i was that was going to be my negative thing when i started talking because again and this is something that i think is going to be interesting and i, I do like when we have these episodes where we both don't like re, we're not like really invested in the film but our opinions are slightly different and because we like arguing we're going to argue more passionately i think about one side <laughs> and the other than what we like really would in a court of law um but uh before I get to my negative thing, one of my nits I will pick with what you just said is just because we could figure out the end of the film in the first five minutes, especially for a children's film, at least for me, it doesn't affect me. I mean, I could tell you kind of the end of The Irishman before I sat through that entire thing. Like, it doesn't make it more or less and good. It's just like that's when we get to sort of tropey type things. It... I think it's not the, the distinction here is not whether you can figure out what the end is going to be, but why the end is going to be. See, I, and, and what I mean thing, here, I, the that's... why the end is going to be of this film is that we're all going to come together and have a good time. And I'm not opposed to that message, but that is that is clearly what the beginning of this film sets up, and that is but clearly I knew, what the film delivers. I knew what that what that was going to be, but I didn't know the why. And I did. It, <laughs> I, the movie tricked me into think. This is what it is. The movie tricked me, and maybe I'm just gullible, but the movie tricked me into thinking it was going to be simpler than it is, and then when it did something that what I would consider not simple, not complex, but we'll call it medium-level sort of like messaging across a thing, I was like, huh, good job, movie. You know what? Great. You earned this cookie-cutter ending that we knew was coming. Um, right. So, but, but anyway, beyond yeah. that, the music in this film about music is not good. It's not bad, it's just there, which is probably the worst thing you could say about uh, music in a movie that's supposed to be about music. Now, I, I the thing I sort of thought about a little bit was that what, what I thought about was DreamWorks Animation, which is, you know, DreamWorks, the company, is a amalgamation. You know, DreamWorks' uh, original name is DreamWorks SKG, which is Spielberg, Katzenberg, Giffen. Mm -hmm. And it is essentially the the melding of three sort of uh, major, major, you know, film, uh, pop culture and music. And I think the thing is, is that the music in this film is all library music and it's all probably library music that has come originated in some way from the Giffen part of that equation. Um, and you know, like it is ostensibly, there, there's nothing in this film in terms of the music that really stands out to me not like you know for example wasn't it uh uh smash mouth did uh all-star in a shrek movie yes. and that's where that song came from mm -hmm. and that's you know like that is a real you know you you look at that and go well you know for whatever i think about shrek i can still point to that song as being really clear as to what the movie is trying to do what the song is trying to do and it's and it's re it's a real banger and and you know like uh can't fight the feeling the the justin timberlake song that that thing that is a great that is great in all the way Justin Timberlake is able to do. Um, this movie doesn't contain any of that, and I, I got to admit, like for me, Anna Kendrick, Justin Timberlake, people I really like as performers. I, I you know I think uh, again Fincher is so good at pulling out like the essential of an actor, yep. and and Justin Timberlake in The Social Network is kind of amazing. Um, here is it's just it's. It feels very much like filler, you know, like it's very much just filler voices that could have been anyone to me and 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 fairly uninteresting. James Corden, a voice actor who I really like, who does, you know, who's in the gruff, who does one of the best Gruffalos um, is just there. 
Uh, the person I really liked was Anderson Park. Um, who, Anderson Park, sorry, who I really like as a musician, and I think his voice just had sort of a, a timbre to it that yep. was kind of nice to listen to. Uh, George Clinton's in this, and I think they're sort of nice to listen to. Sam Rockwell, who's I was going to say, voice, yeah. you know, a voice actor you, you kind of uh, like a, a voice that you kind of recognize is just kind of here. Um, well, so I was going to say that Sam Rockwell. I, I was going to say that my 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 MVPs of the voice acting gig were Rachel Bloom and Sam Rockwell. Um, For me, it was um, uh, it was Anderson Park and uh, Keenan Thompson as as uh, Tiny, Tiny Diamond. Diamond. Yeah, they, they they were just they were the kinds of voices that I really felt resonated through the animation. Sure, like the other voices just felt very much like you know could have been anyone, um, and not not worth the marquee value of the name that you're attaching to it, um, and so. I think you know this move in terms of the thing you're talking about, which is this 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 sort of post-colonial idea of like trolls. You know, the pop trolls may have actually been the perpetrators of the of exactly what the rock trolls are kind of uh, are are doing right now. Uh, I think is is a an idea that's like in the in the way that you derided it for Frozen Two is exactly the way I would say it's deri- it's used here, which is that it feels very much like it's just dropped in and not really dealt with with any consequence. Um, didn't really land with me now. The, the bigger thing that you and I are avoiding here or not really dealing with is that does this work for kids? And, you know, I would have loved to have my son watch this and just see if it worked for him. We do listen to the music of Trolls. Um, he, in terms of the things that really resonate with him right now, I think he's, he's starting to tick into the idea of fear and and movies that scare him are starting to really, really affect him. Good. Um, <laughs> and... I I I don't think anything in this would scare him so much. Um, and 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 like what I mean by that is that those are moments when something actually really scares him. It means it's really getting to him, and that's something we can usually talk about. Moments where you know he's just kind of enjoying the animation and the dancing and that sort of thing. That they you know like for a kid who loved Frozen and watched it every week. He has completely forgotten about Frozen and is like not interested in watching it anymore. I mean, that seems like a very kid thing. That's a kid thing to do. So I'm curious at what point there will be something that really resonates with him beyond the sort of sugar hit of the animation. And mm. this is not one of those things. That's fine. I think this serves its purpose and does you know does it well. Um, I think you know as you mentioned, the aesthetics of the film are really good. You know, the nerd writer, uh, the video essayist, had a really good uh, essay about the visuals of Toy Story 4. And right now, Roger Deakins has actually started his own podcast while in quarantine. Um, And one of my favorite lensed Roger Deakins films is Rango. I believe it was Roger Deakins. I I hope I'm not getting that wrong. But he talks about the fact that, um, that, uh, you know, there is an aesthetic that is being brought in by cinematographers to animated films. And what they're trying to do is figure out the language of cinema... uh, of uh, animation that can cross over that manages to that aligns with the language of cinema as we know it and rango to me is one of the best examples of that rango is a film that is um ostensibly chinatown meets doc holiday uh and a western and it's amazing it's too old for my kid um but but i think you know the aesthetic of this feels very you know kind of aligned in that it's colorful it's uh you know the the dancing is great it just doesn't stick and so the question that you kind of had earlier on is which is um why does this movie matter in terms of breaking the the pact the the pact agreement between movie theaters and 
um, distribution companies and production companies is is has got nothing to do with content. It has nothing to do with and the I content agree. of this film. hundred percent. It has everything to do with the fact that this is a perfectly aligned release to do with the fact that people are at home. Yes. And they are at home with their children. Hundred percent. They need something to watch. And, and that's I, what I, this I never is asked about. that. Question. Nothing to do with content. I never asked that question. I wanted to give this film a fair shake due to its situation. Because yeah. it was look, and do I think it is it should be uh discussed more than its situation after watching it? Not really. No. But I wanted to give it the shot, if that makes sense. Uh I I we I know for a fact that the reason the only reason that Trolls World Tour will be spoke of in the future is if the game changes. And this was the first reason due to a perfect scenario for this specific type of release. Um I mean Another example of that is uh, we don't really talk about the film Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, right? No. <laughs> you know, the Jude Law and Jolie film. I know, I know. Film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We don't really talk about that film very much, but that is the film that transformed the production game as we know it to being more of a, a green screen based yep. production game. But it's not it's not the film that we talk about. And Trolls Herd 2 is very much 100%. In, that, no, I know, agree. in that world. It's just a it's a perfect uh, semblance of circumstance. Yes. And, and now that I have watched it and we've discussed it, and even though I do think it does a little more lifting than it actually has to, uh, it, of course it's just that. Like that, you know, but again, I didn't just want to read headlines and numbers and box office things and talk about Universal AMC and all that stuff without actually looking at the film that even though I 100% agree content didn't matter in the in the grand scheme that much, um, it it very well could have. Uh, and, it, and just because it didn't didn't mean that I didn't want to, like, you know, look it up. So anyway... Uh, and also, Kristen Fight, email us in onlymoviepodcast at gmail dot com. She, so you're telling, you're telling us we did this podcast for one person. No, 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 no. Believe me, she's <laughs> not going to agree with anything we're saying. I'm asking her um, if we left anything out specifically because she will be the definitely the, the trolls researcher. No, no. I, again, even if the content, we, we we couldn't tell if the content mattered or not until we watched it, and we watched it, and we discussed it, and I think we brought up good points. And now we can go back to just having it be headlines. And I don't remember a damn song from it, but I do really like Barb as a character. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I was surprised Ozzy Osbourne was, the, uh, was her dad, right? Like, I'm I was not. Like, I, that, they're going to uh, beat that horse until he – I don't <laughs> think he can ever die. He's just like constantly preserved in uh, – <laughs> Gelatin? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, this has been the only podcast about the film Trolls World Tour – Shahir, when you are not riding along in a felt anglerfish, stealing the music of your other troll brethren, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me at my uh, underground, f oh, my velvet underground lair. There you go. Uh, <laughs> at uh, shahirdowd.com. That's uh, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Matt, when you are not spiking your hair into a colorful tuft by which you can shape uh, uh, and walk upon, where can people find you? <laughs> you can find me complete with jewel in my belly button. Over at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z, on Instagram and PSN. And, of course, Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we're doing over on Extra Credits. I believe by the time this airs, uh, oh, we'll have done uh, an episode I really want to uh, take off. Hopefully it does. We're doing uh, Saving the World Through Games. 
So like social science games and things that everyone can do at home to uh, basically like actively make the world a better place by playing a video game. Um, and there's... what's a video game? What's a video game I should be playing? Quarantine. I I I really can't. I I texted you the other night about Dead Cells. That's like... not for you. You don't think so? I don't think so. I don't think. To be honest, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know you as well as I think I do. I don't think you are. Uh... A, a, a gamer with the amount of time that you have to game that would enjoy being punished. Hmm. Uh, maybe. Th- maybe that's my fetish. Th- maybe. Um. But, but if that's the case, <laughs> you should play Bloodborne. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, I want I want cheap thrills right now, but cheap thrills that... Um... Oh, dude. just I got it. I got your cheap thrill. The, get Doom 2016. Not the new one. The new one's great. The, the That Doom... Is they're both good, but that first one is so fucking good. Cheap thrills, baby. Uh, I think I played it at your place once when I was cat sitting for you. Yeah, didn't and grab I, you. Mm, I think I want cheaper thrills than that. There's no such cheaper thrill than that. <laughs> I want cheaper thrills than that. Like I want the thrill that I had of playing, like not the new God of War, which is which I have and I am slowly making my way through. But when I played God of War one or two, and I was like, oh, I, I recall oh. this. I, I had chicken pox. I was at home and I played God of War one, and it was like, and I played it straight for like two days, and I was happy as Larry. Got it. Devil May Cry five. That could work. I could. I've played a Devil May Cry before, and it's got uh, great reviews. I have not played it myself, but it's supposed to be batshit and and but also fair. It like it. Yeah, that's your game. I got you. That may be my game. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll tweet at all of you, uh, and by at all of you, I mean you'll have to check our Twitter because we can't do that yet. But uh, about what film we're going to be doing, maybe we'll do a poll. Maybe we'll do whatever. Maybe we'll finish Lord of the Rings. Maybe we'll do Zits or whatever Sheer wanted to do before oh, that. Man, I really want to do Zits. weird yeah. thing. Uh, maybe we'll do Capone. Um, I'm actually Music psyched. And One thing I definitely know we're going to do, and I haven't even told you this, but we're doing it. I want to do uh, The King of Staten Island when it drops. Oh, yeah. The Pete Davidson yep. Judd Apatow vehicle, uh, right? With, uh, Will we get old... Carly Aquilino on the show? Uh, pr- maybe. I could, <laughs> maybe. I could reach out. Uh, yeah. I, I could reach out to her. I could reach out to Pete. I could reach out to the, any of the guy code, girl code cast. <laughs> um, but no, uh, that looked, uh, I, was, I, I, I liked that trailer quite a bit, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. Um, I I always have high hopes for Judd Apatow. Yeah. But until then, dear listeners, please remain uh, wonderful and safe and email us in and watch more movies. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Hey, new song. Take us out. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about.